we continue to move towards the end of uh, Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, and, and again, the whole idea here was faith in a new world, and, and we should have found things that were very familiar um, in, you know, from the new world as, as to how they should have lived before, but this is one of those great opportunities they have. They have an opportunity to, to start again. Um, of course, it didn't, wasn't a great opportunity for a good reason. The reason they needed to start again was because, you know, some, they'd done, gone so far, rebelled so much against God that, that they needed a restart. And I pray that that's never our situation. I pray that we never either as an individual church here or as the Christian church in, in modern times or even in Hawaii or the West, I pray that we never get to the point where God says, the only way, only way is total rebuild. Hope not. Pray not. Today, we're going to look where a lot of this has just been leading to. Because this is what has to happen before they can really, you know, move forward. And we've, we've talked about so many things that they've done, but today we, we're going to talk about the importance of the covenant. Before we get there, though, you know, um, I told you guys before, I'm, I guess I'm showing my age and my interest where I, you know, I like to watch uh, shows like... Um, you know, American Pickers, you know, that just proves I'm probably in my 50s or 60s and I'm male, um, because I'm pretty sure it's mainly their, their audience. But as you guys might know, what this, you know, what this show is about is these, these guys, they call themselves Pickers, and they go, to, they go to different places where people have collected what a lot of us would just think is junk. And when they get there, um, sometimes the person has a nice collection and they've displayed it nice and sometimes it's just a barn full of junk. And they'll go and they'll look through it and then they'll find different items and then they'll want to buy it. And in the buying of it, it's the, they, they, they always have this kind of this haggling going back and forth, this negotiating. Um, so sometimes the person might start with a really high price and then personal counter and they keep going back and forth and, and you know that part of the show I find fascinating but it's never been me and I'm, I'm not a really good like bargain haggler kind of guy that's why I hated to buy like a car like it's just the worst um, because I know the car's overpriced but I also know I'm not the kind of guy that's going to try to go in and there and use all my mind games to try to get the price lower. You know, I probably needed to hire somebody to do that for me. But it's, but a lot of people, they like that. You know, that's, you know, the, that's how the world often, you know, was. is kind of bartering, negotiating, going back and forth kind of world. And, and, and we do it in, you know, and I do it in other areas of my life. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people who may not do this kind of bartering, negotiating anywhere else, but they do it with God. They think everything's open to negotiation, even their relationship with God. 
it comes out in different ways. Some ways it comes out where people are like, they only want to read certain parts of the Bible. They only want to accept certain parts of the Bible. They only want to, you know, take in and, and rightly interpret and apply, you know, certain parts. And it's not always the easy parts. Sometimes it's the easy parts. But sometimes it's not just the easy parts. It's just, sometimes it's just the parts they're not comfortable with. Like they may be willing to do some of the really hard things the Bible says that we need to do, but there's other things that, eh, you know, God, I kind of wish you hadn't included that in the Bible. They want to they negotiate. And I'm t- going to tell you, churches are full of people who've negotiated their Christianity. They've negotiated their relationship with God. And pretty much, which is not surprising, the negotiations always kind of end up in the same place. And where they end up is, is this belief in, you know, okay, God, your job is to take care of me and protect me. And when life gets scary, for me not to be scared, and when sad things happen to, to comfort me, that's your job. So if we can agree to that, I will agree to call you Lord, and I will agree to, you know, you're having your name and saying, hey, I'm a Christian. My job is to just do my best to be as good as I can. And that becomes the Christianity. God, you're there to take care of me. And by the way, I'm not going to complain if you want to throw a little extra doses of blessings my way. That's awesome. And what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to do my best. And when I read the Bible and when what the Bible says agrees with what I think I should be doing that's the best, I'm going to do your word. But some of that other stuff, ah, maybe that's for other people. We negotiate. We negotiate this, you know, our, 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 we want to set up this contract so we know exactly what we expect from God and God knows what he can expect from us. Think about that. When you think about all that God has done, when you think about all that God is doing right now, and when you think about what the Bible promises that God will do, and that he will do for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus, when you think about that, what do you have to negotiate with? Why do you think you could even negotiate in that situation? You see, when you negotiate, when you negotiate, you have to have what's called leverage. And, you know, leverage could be a lot of different things. I, I, I might have something you want. You have something I want. Now we can negotiate. I might just need money. You might have money. And I have something you want. There's leverage. What leverage do you have with God? God, if you don't agree, if you don't agree to my terms, 
I'm walking. You know what the Bible tells us in Romans 1? When humanity said, God, you don't agree to my terms, I'm walking. What did God in his wrath do? Let him walk. It's not about negotiating. You see, when we, when we think we're going to negotiate with God, when we think we're going to negotiate what our Christianity and what our Christian life will look like and the parts that we want to do and the parts that we don't want to do, when we think that's the case, then what we're really saying is this. God, I don't trust you. I don't trust your word. I don't trust you have my best interests at heart. I don't trust you're able to keep your end of the bargain. I don't trust that you really know me because if you really knew me, then you would let me do some of the things that I wanna do that kinda go against what's in your word. It ultimately comes down to a lack of trust. That's why when we sing songs, we sing like hymns like, I surrender all. That, that's, that's, that's it. It's not I surrender some, I surrender the best, I sorta, kinda, you know, tentatively give most. No, it's I surrender all. No negotiations, that's what surrender is. And so we, we live in this world that thinks they can negotiate. They can no, negotiate the contract. They can negotiate the covenant. What's helping these people, the people that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, is that they have walked. They've walked this time. They've come to this place. They, they went from a time when they were in exile and what would happen to most nations, if not nearly every single nation that ever was like wiped out and taken into exile, is that, is that they never reform. They're lost to history. And it's not the case. They, they, they came back. 70, 80 years later, the first wave comes back. But they don't just come back. You know, they rebuild the temple. And then despite them not doing their best, even in that period of 50, 60 years, God lets them rebuild the wall. They went from hopeless to a, a temple, a wall, people committed, coming together. And as we read last week, these people that, that repented. They didn't just rush. They didn't go, okay, God, um, you know, we're back. We, you know, we got the temple. Let's renew the covenant now. No. They weren't ready to renew the covenant. They weren't ready to renew the covenant because, one, they didn't really know what the covenant was. And second of all, they didn't really know the condition of their hearts. One of the reasons they're going back and looking at Israel's history is because 
That's their ancestors. And they know. We're, we, we can do the same thing. They're not like what a lot of us today think. Like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I, I, I would never do the things my, you know, my parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents did. I would never do anything as bad as you know, how America was you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. We always think like, no, no, it's always going to be better. It's always going to be good. But when they read through this, they, they realized this is us. This is us without the covenant. Gave value to the covenant. Helped them understand it. Something else interesting has happened. That God has used that time of exile, which is a terrible time. It's a time of judgment. People have died. People have left and were never going to return to their, to their homeland. But God used that, and he used it to do something for, for the, the Jewish people that we know they were prone to go away from. And the law, the law that had always been there, the law that was how we should live with one another, how we should treat one another, that became the focus, the focus of the Jewish people. Now that the temple is restored, you, you have both. You have this focus on the law and you have the focus on temple worship. Of course, this can and it will create problems. But at this beginning point, it's exactly how things should be. So we come to this text and we're going to skip ahead because there was a long listing at the first part of chapter 10. And we're going to jump all the way to verse 28. The listing was all the people that were there to, to keep the covenant. But in verse 28 it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, Join with their brothers, their, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they've, they've come together. They're making this covenant together with God and with each other. And we can see, like, it's, it's everyone, where it says, all who have knowledge and understanding. That was a very long way of saying people of every age. It's, it's only people excluded are like babies or like toddlers who couldn't understand. But this includes from children all the way up to adults. They're all there. And it talks about they're coming from every walk of life. This isn't just like the common people rising up against, you know, and coming together. And it's not just the leaders. It's everybody. They've all come together. 
And it says they enter into a curse and an oath. And that was kind of the way, you know, if you made a people made an agreement with a king back then, it would involve a curse and an oath. And it was kind of like that, what later came to be called the social contract. King would promise to provide certain things. The people would promise to do some certain things. And then there would be a vow to do it, an oath. But there would also be this, you know, accepting of a curse. If we don't do it, may this happen to us. And it, even here, if you look in verse um, 29, it even there invokes the holy name of God. If you look in your Bibles, it says, the commandments of the Lord are Lord. And the first Lord is, is all capital. And that would have signified in the Hebrew text, that was the name Yahweh. They're saying we're going to do this. We're going to observe it. And we're going to do it all. We're going to do it all. And the first point I want to make about covenants with God is that there are no partial covenants with God. It's not most. It's not some. It's not the majority. It's all. It's all. No partial covenants with God. People want to negotiate. There's actually debates. You may be a part of them. You may have taken a side in one of these. I'm not here to debate you. I'm just here to say there are people that, that, that think like, you know, what Jesus really came to do was save and the lordship part was optional. That part can be negotiated. But what we really, really, really want is just a savior. We, we want to be able to say to, you know, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for letting me live, but, but don't tell me how to live. Just save my life, but don't tell me how to live it. There, there are no partial covenants with God. And the reason for this, and one of the huge differences between what's happening back here, you know, 24, 2,500 years ago, and what's happening today, one of the huge differences is that, is that our keeping of the covenant is not simply dependent upon us. In fact, in a very real sense, it's not dependent on us at all. It's dependent upon our faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ does for us. Because what the people of Israel proved, and it could have been any of us that could have proved this, is that on our own, we are only capable of partial covenants with God. On our own, we can say the words surrender all, but we really can't surrender all. The only way it's possible is if Jesus Christ does it for us. It's, that's always the beginning of true Christianity. The beginning of true faith 
is this acknowledgement that, that what God wants for us, that what God's standard is for us, and that what we know we need to do if we're ever going to be all that we were created to be is impossible. When we get to the point that we realize it's impossible, then we know that someone else has to do it for us. And thank God someone did. It becomes possible because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, that when we have that attitude, when we understand that, it keeps us always humble. There's no place for self-righteousness. It's not about you're a better Christian than me because somehow you've, you've worked harder and you've been better. It's, no, it's because of what Christ has done. I've lived long enough to, to know that, that, that there are people who, who, who do everything right. They do everything by the book. But because of what's in their hearts, they can never grow anymore as, as Christians. They can keep studying. They can keep giving. They can keep showing up. But something just stops them from ever doing anything more. It's not, it's not just about our efforts. The Bible tells us make every effort. The Bible tells us be diligent. The, the Bible tells us work out your salvation. The Bible tells us all of that. And we do bring our best effort. But what we, re, what we understand is compared to what needs to be done, our best effort doesn't even get us out of the starting blocks. It's, it's when Christ meets our efforts, when the Holy Spirit meets our efforts, when in the hands of God our efforts do so much more. No partial covenants. There's this other thing that we've been talking about, so I'm going to just not go over it in depth, but I want to make sure we understand that when it talks about these two specific things. It talks about all the law, and then it talks about these two specific things. And the first thing it says in verse 30, it says, we'll not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is a summary of a much bigger discussion, much bigger argument. This, again, has nothing to do with ethnicity. This isn't about, oh, you should only marry in your own race. Sadly, Christians actually interpreted that to mean that at different parts in, in church history. It's not what it means. As we've been talking about the, the big problem, the big problem that, that from the very beginning, you go all the way back to, to, to um, judges. You go all the way back to the very, very beginning when they're in the promised land. The ever-present threat, the ever-present danger is that word we've talked about, syncretism. Syncretism. The Bible doesn't use the word syncretism. Instead, it says stuff like idolatry. Or it says that 
that they became like the people that were around them. And what it means is, is, that, is that they were compromising the covenant. They were compromising the covenant so that they could kind of fit in. And maybe they had good reasons. Maybe it was, you know, that's how we're going to keep the peace. Maybe it was, you know, it's good business. It's good business to, you know, make friends. And yeah, we can just kind of, you know, hide that faith part. Because, you know, harder to work a deal. They might have had really good reasons. But what they were doing is they were compromising. A covenant with God means no competing, no compromising covenants with anyone else. You see, what invariably would happen is they would intermarry and pretty soon it was the other culture's gods sitting right alongside Yahweh, the one true God. Or sometimes taking his place. This was the path. It wasn't a slippery slope. It was like a cliff that you fall off. Say, no, this is why you have to stay away from it. This is why you, you have to be careful. And again, we have, we have incidents in the Bible where people who were not Israelites or who were not Jewish actually convert to Judaism, no problem. Because the, the danger of syncretism isn't, isn't in that situation. And it, 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 it has, you know, it's been five, six, seven hundred years, never goes away. In fact, it never goes away for us either. But, you know, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. I mean, the fact that none of you are speaking Koine Greek, or I'm pretty sure there's not, nobody has a Bible that you read, you read from the Hebrew this morning. The fact that, you know, we're wearing these clothes and you know, not the clothes they would have worn a couple thousand years ago. We know there's things that change, and they've always changed, and they need to change. But the danger is always, okay, when am I changing the things that really matter? And of course, if we're not disciples, if we don't know the word, if we don't have a right interpretation of Scripture, then even essential truths are at risk of being compromised. And so, we have to be careful. Because there can be no competing, no compromising covenants. How can you say, I give all? I give all. Except the part, you know, this contract I made over here. That, that part's, you know, can't give that to you. It's all. doesn't mean you can't enter into covenants, you can't enter into contracts, 
but any covenant or contract that you do enter into needs to be consistent with the covenant that you've entered into with God. Can't be competing. That's why in the New Testament it says, don't be unequally yoked. In other words, don't work alongside someone, whether it's a spouse or a business partner, someone who, who is, that you are yoked to that's going to want to take you away from the covenant. Just don't do it. It doesn't say don't be yoked. It just says don't be yoked to people that's going to take you away from the covenant. Be yoked with people that are, that are going in the same direction. I've told some of you this before, that it's one of the, the things I would see it when, I, when I taught at the seminary. I would see where, you know, husband or wife is just growing in their faith and feeling God's call. And, and you know, whether it's to, to go on the mission field or whatever it is, but the, the, the spouse just wasn't having any of it. And I just wanted to ask them, like, did you guys not talk about this before you got married? You were Christians before you got married. Did you not talk about this? You know, one of the questions I ask couples when I do uh, premarital counseling here, one of the questions I ask, because I know it's an important question, I ask, is Hawaii the only place you're willing to live? Because if they don't have this conversation and one of them's like, I'll live anywhere. As a matter of fact, I might want to live anywhere. In fact, I want to live anywhere but Hawaii. And the other person says, I don't want to live anywhere except Hawaii. I only want to live in Hawaii. Have that conversation, right? If one only wants to live here and the other one doesn't want to live here at all, why not have that conversation? If you're Christian young people thinking about getting married or Christian older people thinking about getting married. If, if you've surrendered all and both of you have surrendered all, that's great. You've surrendered all. But if one is only saying it and the other one really means it and then God comes and he says, hey, this is what I got for you. The partial covenant person, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. I told you a few weeks ago that, you know, average time of a pastor in a church is 18, 18 months. I think in Hawaii it could be even less. And part of the reason is because people will say, you know, I surrender all. I will do whatever you want, God. And then they'll come here and one of the two spouses just not happy can't live here you know they constantly think that little one bedroom apartment they're paying for they could pay that same amount to live in a five bedroom house where they're from and they just can't do it they just can't you know go to the you know have to take out a loan to go buy eggs and milk from you know food land or something they just can't do it they can't like Think like, you know, we can't just drive and go see grandma and grandpa when we have the kids. Just can't do it. 
We can make no competing or compromising covenants. And the last thing we have here is keeping a covenant with God in a fallen world will cost the faithful. And sometimes it's going to cost us a lot. You know, the, the, the New Testament talks about, you know, the suffering of Christ and how, and how we identify with Christ and his suffering, not just his glory. But sometimes it, it just costs in smaller ways. You know, here it says, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. You see, if, 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 if I were to somehow like confuse you, if I were to confuse you where you did not know what day it was, and then you suddenly, okay, I could talk to you, and I say, what day is it? You wouldn't know. You, you would look around like, it's the same as any other day. You look at the Sabbath, you go, why is the Sabbath so special? Why is it so special? It's, you know, back then the Sabbath was on Saturday. Why is Saturday special? Do you get up in the morning and somehow the sun is a different color? You know, is there things in the sky that tell you, you know, do birds sing, you know, more cheery on Saturday? might seem that way if you're not going to work, but in truth, it's, it's a 24-hour period. It's the earth's rotation. It is what it is. And you could easily, if you were in this time, you could easily say, we got customers. They're coming on the Sabbath. You could even maybe, again, negotiate with God, even though the, you know, the law had said, you know, keep the Sabbath. You could negotiate with God. You could say, God, you know, if I stay open just half a day on the Sabbath, I can make more money that I can give to you. Hey, good deal, God. As though God needs your money. You know, God, I'm doing a good thing. I'm building relationships with our neighbors. I'm doing a good thing. I'm, I'm giving people employment, giving them something to do. No. We have to understand, keeping law, even if we don't understand it, we don't understand why the Sabbath? Why a Sabbath? Why this day? Even if we don't get it, we have to understand that sometimes following God and keeping his law is going to cost us in a fallen world. If you surrender all, you surrender even the loss of business. You surrender all even that people could be upset with you. And that's, again, because it's the entire covenant, not just pieces of it. The entire, the entire covenant was actually given as a grace, as a gift to the people of Israel so that they would be protected from physical and spiritual harm 
and they would be protected as, as a nation in one of the most difficult places for any nation to exist. And they would be protected if they would keep the covenant. And so again, this isn't saying we shouldn't have relationships. You can have relationships. It doesn't say don't buy goods from anybody on any day. It just says not on the Sabbath. You can still have relationships. Just not those that lead to compromise. I want to just give warning to uh, Cam up there. I'm going to skip through some of this uh, next section. I just want to read parts of it. But in verse 32 it says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And if you, if you read on, it starts to talk about all the different things they're going to pay for. They're going to pay for the, the showbread, the, the different offerings. They're going to pay for um, the sacrifices, the different feasts that are, that are taking place. If you jump down to verse 34, it says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lot for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's house. They must have heard my magic bunny sermon. That's the only explanation because nobody thought like this. The fire in the altar is always burning. Magic bunnies must bring the wood. No, they realize somebody got to bring the wood. Oh, it's us. We're bringing the wood. And so they made a plan. Who would bring the wood to keep the fire burning? In verse 35, it says, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all, all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And by first fruits, it could literally mean the first fruits, but it, it actually was more about the best. They're going to bring their best. It's one of the ways I, I talk about our own worship, our own offering um, that we, we make to God. And I'm not talking about money or material things at this point. I'm just talking about the offering of our lives. That idea of first fruits is that we offer to God our best. We don't give God our leftovers. We don't give him our leftover time our leftover energy, our leftover talent. No, we, we, we give him our best, the first fruits. And it says, and also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and it continues to say all the things that they're going to provide for, for the priests and the others. Again, the temple, the temple, there was a lot to do to maintain it. I mean, not just the official ritual parts, you know, someone had to clean it. Someone had to fix stuff when it got broken. And then if we jump down to the last verse, it says... For the people of Israel and the sons of 
Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This covenant, and the reason I think for this passage is, is that, that last phrase, we will not neglect the house of our God. A covenant with God means that we will not neglect his house and those who serve in it. It's always weird for me. Like I, I don't like to, to talk about these things except it's, it's what's here in the text. And, and a couple chapters ago, there was the importance of the law and the, the importance of the word of God. And as I talked about, that's something that had come back to the fore during the exile. But now they're also saying, but you need to also take care of the temple. You need to maintain the temple, the sacrificial system. Yes, you need to keep the law. You need to keep all the ethical laws because that's, you know, that's how God wants you to relate to one another. But you also must take care of the temple. And again, a practical person would go, why? Look, when we were in Babylon, we were okay. We didn't have a temple. We had the law. You know, we got together. We sang. We prayed. We worshiped. We, we observed all the, all the festivals. It's all good. Why do we need a temple? And really, do we need this big of a temple? Maybe we could get a smaller temple. I said, no. Saying these, there's this temple actually helps the people keep the covenant. It does it in the most obvious and, and practical way in that when they sin, there's a place for atonement. But the temple was also a symbol. It was a symbol. It was actually once a year God's presence would be there. But it was a symbol of this covenant that they had with God. It was more than than just a place. And I ask you this question today. You know, as we think about the importance of the temple, and it leads us back to the importance of the covenant. Do we need a covenant? I'm talking not about a covenant with God, but a covenant here is the church. Why can't we just let stuff happen? Why can't we just all come together and God's spirit and God's word will just move us and we don't, you know, we can just let stuff happen. Do we need a covenant? Whether we need one or not, we actually have one. But let me tell you why I think we need one first. I think we need one because, because all of us are somewhere growing in our faith and we're at different places in our faith. And the second thing is, is that all of us are still, we're still influenced by our fallen nature. We need something that reminds us of who we are. We need some, something that helps us know that, that even if we break the covenant, even if we sin, that there is a place of forgiveness and grace and atonement. 
It's a promise we make to God and a promise we make to each other. It reminds us that at the heart of being followers of God are these words, obedience, holiness, and faithfulness. Usually on the back of your notes in your bulletin, I have, you know, we have the different descriptors of, of, of a healthy church from Romans 12. But for, day, for today, I replaced it with something else. I encourage you, if you have it, to take it out. If you're at home, I encourage you to take it out. We're going to put these words up on the screen. And... Uh, I'm going to invite you, especially if you're a member of this church, that we would read this together. If you're not a member and you're thinking about becoming a part of this church, this is, this is the covenant that we make with each other. We don't have a police force that goes out and enforces the covenant. We trust that if we're truly people of the follower of the way, the truth, and the life, that the words we say have meaning. But let's read this together. And um, again, if you just want to read along, you're welcome to do that too. I'll try to read at a comfortable pace. As members of Wiley Baptist Church, we subscribe to the following covenant. So let's, let's take these one by one. Live my life under the lordship of Jesus Christ in Christian community with my brothers and sisters in Christ at this church. Second, accept the word of God as the authority in all areas of my life and study it regularly and faithfully with pastors and teachers at the church and on my own. Follow the senior pastor and others in church leadership as they are led by the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the Word of God. Be equipped for service by the church leadership for ministry in the church. Serve in the church in a role appropriate to my gifting and maturity and in accordance with the teaching in the Bible and leadership of the church. Be diligent to maintain the unity of the church through loving each other in a spirit of grace and humility, always looking to serve, honor, forgive, and reconcile with one another. Support the ministries and activities of the church through faithful giving, regular attendance, and full participation. This covenant is a sacred promise made between the members of this church and myself to be united as one body in Christ. Should I believe that God is leading me to leave this church, I will make every effort to seek the counsel of the senior pastor 
before deciding to do so. And if I leave, I will look to join with another church of like faith as soon as possible.